following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. We are between series. Next week, Lord willing, I'm planning to start the book of Romans and kind of figured on the day we were doing baptism, I didn't want to do my introduction to Romans sermon. And so um, I thought it'd be a good time uh, just to, to take uh, to look at a passage that particularly uh, helps us understand the significance of baptism. And of course, there are very few uh, more exciting events in the life of a church than a baptizing uh, someone who is trusted in Christ. It's such a, such a wonderful blessing for us to be able to rejoice over that new life and, and to see people publicly declare that they have turned from their sin to Christ and they want to live for Him. So, so, so I'd like to consider a, a very familiar text which beautifully articulates uh, what we visualize in the ordinance of baptism. And so uh, our primary focus is going to be verses 3 through 7 of Titus 3, but for the sake of context, I want to begin reading in verse 1. So Paul says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's no question uh, that religious people tend to be the most arrogant people that you will meet in society, right? The Pharisees are exhibit number one of people who used their religion and and their religious piety as a means to look down their noses at other people. And they're not alone. We we see people like this all the time that, that, that use their religion not so much to glorify God, but as a means to despise other people. And, and it's, it's really unfortunate, right? Because, because I can't think of any vice that is more antithetical to true gospel Christianity than pride. Because the gospel is, is rooted in the fact that I have a big view of my own sin and an even bigger view of the grace of God in Christ. So so there is no room for pride at the foot of the cross. No room at all. And Titus 3, 1-7, the passage we just read, challenges us that this perspective has to shape how I view the outside world. So specifically, uh, verse 1 commands Christians to obey government authorities. That's not always easy to do. And and as well, verse 2 commands us to treat all people with integrity and grace. Again, that's not always easy. And and these things are not easy because 
Because, you know, think of these, of Titus's church. Titus is pastoring a church in the, on the island of Crete. And you can imagine that some of the rulers there in Crete were not the most righteous, just, fair people. They were probably crooks. They were deceitful. They were selfish. And they've got to obey them. And then people in general oftentimes are, are jerks. They're unkind. They're wicked. And it's not always easy, as verse 2 says, to be peaceable, gentle, showing consideration for all people. And in fact, as Christians, when we are mistreated, especially because of our faith, it's very tempting to, to bitterly snarl at this corruption and to use it as justification to despise sinners and to treat them poorly. So, so what Paul does is he gives the challenge in verses 1 and 2 to obey uh, authorities, and then in verse 2, to treat all people with grace and kindness, and then he grounds it all in verses 3 through 7 in, 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 in the foot of the cross. And he says that we as Christians have no right to despise anyone, to, to look down our noses at anyone or to treat them poorly, because we are no better than they are. We are what we are only by the grace of God. And in the process, Paul gives one of the clearest and one of the best explanations of the gospel in the entire New Testament. If you're looking for a passage to use in sharing the gospel with someone, there's not many that are better than this one. Uh, this is one of my favorite passages, walking through the gospel. And, and, and Paul makes his point about the gospel by reminding us first of the fact of our natural condition. And so, uh, there we go. Uh, our natural condition. Now, now verse 3 Verse 3, in and of itself, is not good news. I've never walked into Target, found a card in the Hallmark rack that says, Happy birthday! You are a deceived, disobedient, foolish sinner. Right? I mean, you, you probably wouldn't be excited to get that birthday card. And, and so, we don't generally like to think of ourselves in the terms that are described here in verse 3. But, but Christians understand that verse 3 is essential to the gospel. You can't really appreciate the cross, and you can't appreciate the symbolism of baptism without a strong doctrine of depravity and sin. So, so maturing Christians do not ignore our depravity and pretend like we have it all together. No, instead, maturing Christians cultivate an ever-increasing awareness of my natural corruption and sin, so that I have an ever-increasing appreciation of God's love and grace. So, so you know, our, our culture would say that, that you, you, know, you know, feel good thoughts about yourself, be positive. But we believe that the only way that we can really get to the truth, the good news, is to dwell deeply on the realities of verse 3. So first, verse 3 says, that in myself, before Christ, I was foolish. And, and then similarly, the third description is, I was deceived. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, that the God of this world, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, now that is a humbling verse. Because... Most people like to, them, like to think of themselves as objective people 
who, who can do a pretty good job of evaluating truth claims. Now, I, I've never met a, an unbeliever who, who thinks, I have no ability to comprehend spiritual truth. You know, a lot of them think, you know, that, that I can, you know, look at all the religions of the world and I can take the best of this one and take the best of that one. And, and under it all is the assumption that, that, that they've got a, a clear sense of what is truth and what is reality, what is right and wrong. But that's not what God says here. God says we are born to this world deceived fools because Satan has blinded our eyes. And so that's what I am and that's what you are apart from the grace of God. And then verse 3 also adds that we are disobedient. Now, now I would imagine that, that anyone would admit that they are disobedient some of the time. But, but what we tend to think, what we like to think, is that my disobedience is out of character. You know, that, that's not really who I am when, when I sin and when I disobey. But God says that disobedience is not out of character. It is my character. That, that I'm not simply a victim of my environment or, or circumstances around me, and I don't just occasionally do bad things. No, I am born especially disobedient to God in rebellion against His will, and and rebelling against His authority, and refusing to repent and believe the gospel. So so we are disobedient. Next, uh, Paul says that we are enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Now, Now, the unbeliever wants to believe that his sin serves him. You know, that I go out and do this thing, and I do that thing, and I do it all for me. But the Bible says... That, that I am not fundamentally, that my sin does not fundamentally serve me. It says, I fundamentally serve my sin. The old saying, I think, is very true, that, that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And you don't have to look very far to see that that is absolutely the case. You know, that, that people want to believe that they are in charge of their sin, but 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 we are surrounded by scores of people who are servants of their sin. That their sin has taken them far further than they planned to go. And it controls their life. And then the next, the final four descriptions in verse 3 concern the unbeliever's failure to love his neighbor. Now, now, now again, like we, we as a society, we like to think that we love well, that, that we love people, we care for everyone, we love our neighbor. But what does Paul say? He says that we are plagued with malice and envy. Now, people are nasty, aren't they? You just hop on, you know, chat rooms and blogs and social media. I mean, there is a lot of malice in our society. And there's a lot of envy. You know, that that when people have good things happen to them, you know, our our natural reaction is not always to rejoice with them. Our natural reaction is often to kind of it bothers us that they're having things good and we don't. And so envy is all around us. Now, now no one, of course, feels malice and envy towards everyone. You know, you probably don't feel malice and envy towards a newborn child or your family or other people like that. But, 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 but malice and envy dominate our society. They're everywhere. And it's not an accident. It's because they are deeply embedded in the hearts of sinners. And then the, and the result is the final two descriptions, 
that we are hateful and hating one another. Now, of course, for 60 years, the hippies have been trying to drive hate out of our society, and, and people in the West have tried to imagine a world with no hatred where we all just love each other and get along, and, and peace just naturally follows. But if anything, our society has become ruder and more caustic. And it's because hate is not contrary to our nature. Hate is at the heart of who we are. We are selfish, and we fight for what we think serves me. And so we are naturally hateful people. And so our society is, is plagued by hate. We, we hate one another. We're rude. We're nasty. And we do all sorts of evil, terrible things. So folks, that's what we are apart from Christ. So, so, so I want to challenge you if you're a Christian. You know, don't look at verse 3 and, and use it to sit there, you know, fold your arms, and look down your nose and, and gruff and complain about how bad the world is. Because that's not the point of this verse. The point that Paul's making in this verse is he is challenging you to reflect on yourself. And to understand that this is what you are and what you were apart from God. This is what you were when God found you. And He didn't love you because you were so innocent, so attractive, and so beautiful. No, instead, He loved you in your sin. He loved you when you were this. And He rescued you from your sin. And don't ever lose that perspective. Because it is essential context for understanding your relationship to God, and as well in the context of Titus 3, your relationship to all humanity. So, so whenever I see vile humanity and vile sin around me in the culture, you know, I, I shouldn't sit there and think, man, what a bunch of losers. I can't believe they're so terrible. I'm glad I'm better than they are. No, what Paul is saying here is that when I see depravity on display, I should always respond by saying, wow, that's my heart except for the grace of God. And if you have never received Christ as your Savior, understand that this verse describes you today. Now, now you might say, no way! I'm a good person. I love people and, and I do good things. But, but you know, I think you know that you're lying to yourself. That if you're honest with yourself and you really look at your heart, malice, envy, hate, disobedience, they're all there. And you deal with them all the time. And, and I know that's not pleasant to hear, but, but the only way that you can fully appreciate the salvation that God provides is to come to grips with verse 3. I mean, you have to accept the, the bad news to really appreciate the good news. And, and thankfully, the rest of this passage goes on to give some great news. So, so notice in verses 4 and 5, God's generous mercy. Now, now it's worth pointing out that the verses 4 through 7 in the Greek are all one long, complicated sentence. Uh, but the whole sentence is built around the subject, God our Savior, in verse 4, and the action in verse 5, that God our Savior saved us. So, so in other words, what that means is that the Father determined not to leave us in the condition of verse 3. Destined to face his judgment. No, he provided a way for us to be saved, or, or you could say rescued or delivered, both from the penalty of sin 
the judgment of God and also the power of sin that creates these sinful actions. And so notice that, first of all, that God's generous mercy provided the motive for our salvation. Now, now again, we, we all like to think of ourselves as lovable people, right? I mean, you like to think, you know, you know why, why wouldn't someone like me? I'm a swell guy or you're a swell lady, and, and of course people are going to like me. And that's not entirely false, right? So, so all of us are made in the image of God, and God's common grace dwells on all people, so, so no one is as bad as they could be, all right? So, so there is reality in the fact that, 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 that there is worth and value and, and something lovable in all people. But, but our text is clear. That whatever good resides in me or you, it is far from enough, far from enough to merit God's love. No, no, the malignancy of verse 3 overwhelms any good in the heart of a sinner. So, So we all need to understand that there is nothing in you and nothing in me that compels God to love me. All I deserve is judgment. But, but therefore, and, and so because of that, the, the but that begins verse 4 is, is, is a vital part of the passage. So verse 3 says that I am a depraved, unlovable sinner, but, verse 4 says, the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. And we should all be thankful today that God is not just some heartless judge who's simply up in heaven meeting out blind justice, that our God is kind. And not only is He kind, Paul says here that He is full of love. And it's interesting that the Greek word that's translated love here is the word philanthropia. Of course, we get our word philanthropy from it. And what is a philanthropist? A philanthropist is someone who is wealthy, who has means, and he uses them he uses this means to generously provide for other people. And, and so, what God is saying here is that He is very rich and that His love, His generosity, not our worth, compels Him to generously act for us and to provide us with salvation. So, so you know, one of my pet peeves is, you know, if we ever look at the cross or look at the manger, and our response to, to those stories is to say, wow, I must be really special for God to do something like that for me. Then, then we have entirely missed the point of the gospel. Now, yes, there is value and, and worth in us, but, but God did not primarily love the world because of my character, but because of His. And He did not love us because we are so special. He loved us because He is generous. Now, I've used this illustration before. You know, it's, it's easy for us. You know, I have four children now, and, and I love my kids. And I would do anything for my kids. You know, and that's pretty common. I think most people would do just about anything for their children. But, but would you have the same reaction if you came across some man who is homeless and and, and beat up, and, and he's there because he's wasted his life and done, made horrible decisions, and, 
filled his body with drugs and alcohol and abused himself for years? Are you going to give your life as easily for that man as you would your child? And it'd be really hard to give your life for someone who had destroyed his own. And yet, in the gospel, what what this passage is telling us is that God did exactly that for us. When we wanted nothing to do with Him, when we were running from Him, He he ran towards us and and gave His Son for us. And and so the old hymn says, "I, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how He could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. That is a wonderful question. And praise God that His generous mercy motivated Him to provide us with salvation. So, so God's mercy is, it provides the motive for salvation. And then notice that verse 5 adds that God's generous mercy also provides the basis for our salvation. So, so now, now before we get to that, notice that, that when verse 4 says that God's kindness appeared, and then uh, verse 5 says He saved us, that, that Paul is referring to the Father's decree to send Jesus into the world. So, so fa- the Father sent Jesus and He lived a perfect life. He, he died as a substitute for us on the cross. And then He rose in victory. And, and so that's what God did for us based on His incredible love. He sent His Son into the world to die for us, to bear our punishment, and to rise in victory. And verse 5a emphasizes the fact that this work of Christ is the basis of our salvation. And Paul makes this point with a very important contrast. He says, we are not saved on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Instead, or but, and in the Greek there's a strong contrast there, instead we are saved according to, to His mercy. Now, of course, we know from other passages that that God provided this mercy through the death and resurrection of Christ. So so it's not that God just, yeah, I don't care. Uh, You know, I'll just cover my eyes and pretend like you didn't sin. No, Christ had to go to the cross because God is just and He had to suffer the just punishment for our sin so that God could be both just and merciful. And the contrast in verse 5 is essential for understanding the nature of that mercy and how it is applied to us. Because after all, I mean, most people, I think most people admit that they need some mercy, right? I don't think there's anyone out there that really thinks that they are perfect and that never in their lives have they needed some level of mercy. But, But most people want to believe that or they want to take at least a little bit of credit for their salvation. You know, they want salvation to be a team effort, you know, where, where for the most part, God loves me and God accepts me because I'm a good person and I do good things. But then, you know, the, the part, you know, the sliver where I don't quite measure up, I'm thankful for God's grace to cover it. That's how most religions function. There's merit and grace, and they work together so that I can be accepted by God. But that's not what God says here, does He? I mean, He says our righteous deeds, your good works, contribute nothing to our salvation. We are saved solely by the mercy of God provided in Christ. 
So there's nothing I can add. There's no good work, no church attendance, no practice of mine, no no family heritage, any of that. None of those things contribute to my salvation. I am wholly and completely a debtor to the mercy of God. And so, because of that, I don't have any right to boast about my salvation. Or to hold up my new life in Christ as a point of superiority over other people. I am no better than anyone else in myself. And I think it's fair to say that I live a better life than a lot of people. And I've lived a more responsible life than a lot of people. But, but you know what? It's not because of me. It is all because of the mercy of God. I mean, I am just a disobedient fool enslaved to sin and malice when God generously reached out to me with mercy. And, and so praise God for, for the generous mercy that he has shown. And of course, all of this should, should drive us to have tremendous humility. As John Newton said, I am a great sinner and I serve a great Savior. I mean, that is who I am and that's who Jesus is. And maybe there's someone here that that you need to receive this salvation. And maybe for the first time, based on what God's Word says, you are coming to grips with the fact that you are a sinner. And that you don't deserve God's grace. And that's not a great feeling. But, But the only way that you will fully cast yourself on the cross work of Jesus is to understand that there is nothing that you can bring to God in your hands that would satisfy His righteousness. And then you can fully cast yourself on Christ. And, and you can be saved today. If the Bible says if you just simply repent of your sin, you know, acknowledge God for who He is, acknowledge how you have sinned against Him, and then put your faith in what Jesus did. And if you have never done that before, You've always thought, certainly God accepts me because I'm a pretty good guy and I do a lot of good things and I was baptized and I'm sure God will make up the difference. That's not how salvation works. You must repent and trust in Jesus. So so God's generous mercy is both the motive for our salvation and the basis for our salvation. And, And And then finally, notice in the remainder of the text, God's powerful grace. So so the remainder of the passage here lays out five blessings that come to us when Jesus' death on the cross is applied to us by faith. And the first blessing is, is that God removes my sin. So notice at the end of verse 5, it says that, that we are saved according to His mercy, and then it says, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So verse 5 says that God washes away our sin. And baptism is in part intended to illustrate this fact. So uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 say that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judah was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. Now, now I think it's important to emphasize that there are some differences between John's baptism prior to the death of Christ and the baptism that we do in the church for people post-Christ's death and resurrection. All right, There are differences. 
But there are clearly similarities, and, and clearly the early church saw some continuity between what they were doing in the church and what John the Baptist had been doing. And what this passage tells us very clearly is, is that when John was baptizing people, they would come out to him, and, and they, he would preach to them, and they understood that they were sinners, that they had violated God's law. And they repented of their sins, and when they went down in the water and they were dipped in the water, it was done to symbolize the fact that God was washing away their sins, that He was forgiving them, removing that debt. And so John's baptism illustrated forgiveness through repentance. That we are all dirty with sin, but when God forgives, He washes it away. And because of that, I am no longer soiled with sin. I am clean without any trace of pollution. And folks, that is a marvelous gift. Psalm 103 verse 13 says, or verse 12 says that he, he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. So God removes my sin. The second blessing we see here is that God renews my heart. Now, now you can see there at the end of verse 5, there are, kind of, there are four major concepts in the last statement. Washing, regeneration, renewal, and the Holy Spirit. And, and there's some questions, some debate about how those four concepts uh, relate to each other here. I think the best view is, is that what Paul is saying is that the washing of forgiveness results in regeneration and renewal, both of which are the work of the Holy Spirit. So, so regeneration and renewal here are, are very similar, almost identical concepts, and they're, they're works of the Spirit that happen to us at conversion. And in this verse, they turn the focus from the removal of my guilt, my condemnation, right? So uh, that's what washing is. Washing removes my condemnation, my guilt before God. And these two concepts, regeneration and renewal, turn to the fact that God doesn't just remove my condemnation. He also changes my heart. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, of course, verse 3 already assumed this. Because verse 3 does not say, God forgives you even while you continue to be a disobedient, deceived, foolish, enslaved sinner. No, what's it say? It says that you were once disobedient, deceived, foolish. Now, of course, those things are still there in part. But the assumption of verse 3 is that I'm not these things anymore. That God has fundamentally changed who I am. And again, baptism symbolizes this incredible miracle. So uh, I always reference Romans 6 verse 4 when I do baptisms. And, and Romans 6 4 says, Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So, so what that verse is saying is that when I get saved, I am united with Christ. And when I am united with Christ, I am buried in the likeness of His death. And the idea is, is that my old life, the life of verse 3, goes in the grave with Jesus. And it's left there. And when I come up, and then I'm raised, I'm not just united with His death, I'm united with His resurrection, I'm raised to walk in newness of life. 
I am a new creature in Christ. And so praise the Lord that the Holy Spirit rescues us from the domination of sin that's described in verse 3. I'm a new creature. And then the third blessing of the gospel is that God indwells me. So verse 6 says, whom he, uh, says of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now, something of a side note here. Uh, some people like to believe that the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, was an invention of the church in the 4th century. You know, that, that Paul and James and Peter, they really didn't have any concept of the Trinity, and that later on, the church just kind of made it up. Well, well this passage is pretty clear that Paul believed in three persons of the Godhead. Because he says that God the Father sends the Holy Spirit through Jesus. So, so we have three persons there, and I think you know, it's good to just point those things out. That, that these, you know, Someone didn't just suck this out of their thumb. It's right here in the text of God's Word. So, so that said, verse 6 teaches that, that, I am not merely a new, um, that I am not merely a new creature. You know, God has changed who I am, but, but He has also given me the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is at work in my life every day, convicting me of sin, strengthening my faith, empowering my obedience, assuring me that someday I'm going to be with God in glory. And the Holy Spirit is a wonderful blessing of the gospel that we probably don't appreciate nearly as much as we should. And then the fourth blessing is that God justifies me. So verse 7 says that we are justified by His grace. Now justification is God's legal declaration based on Christ's atoning work. And so Christ, or God, credits to us Christ's righteousness. And He declares us not guilty, even though on a practical level, we are still very guilty. So so the righteousness of Jesus is credited to me, and so from a legal perspective, I am judged based on the righteousness of Christ, which is a good thing, right? Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And He does all of that even while I'm still a sinner. Romans 4, 5 says God justifies the ungodly. So, so I'm covered. And, and none of us in here are perfect. None of us are going to heaven because we earned it. We go to heaven because we are in Christ and we are judged in Him. And, and of course, justification then is essential to our salvation because it is our only hope of escaping God's wrath. Without justification, we are all doomed to endure God's wrath in hell, but because God is generously merciful, He saved me, and He did so by justifying me in Christ. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Galatians 2, 16, and many other passages teach that this incredible blessing of justification is simply available through faith. I don't earn it. I don't talk God into it. I just simply recognize, God, You are God. You are my authority. I have broken your law, and I trust in Christ as my only hope of salvation. It's a wonderful blessing of God. And then the final blessing of this passage is that God provides me an inheritance. Now, this passage talks a lot about the fact that, that all who are in Christ experience blessings of the gospel every single day. And we have so much to be thankful for. We are forgiven, we are regenerated. 
we are indwelt, we are justified, and we could go on and on. But all of it is just a foretaste of our full inheritance that awaits us in glory. And our inheritance in heaven will be truly, truly incredible. So so in conclusion, this passage describes the incredible wonder of God's merciful salvation in Christ. And in light of all of it, my basic challenge for us is simply that we must humbly bow at the foot of the cross. And I say humbly because I don't deserve any of it. And apart from Christ, I'm just a wicked sinner who deserves judgment and wrath. But in the cross, God displayed incredible mercy. And He saved me from the consequences of sin, which is eternal judgment in hell. And He also saved me from the power of sin that enslaves the unbeliever. And and so every day, I as a Christian should humbly bow before the cross and say, thank you, Jesus, for the marvelous salvation you've provided. And if you've never received that salvation then I want to urge you to please bow at the foot of the cross in a true sense for the first time. You might have physically bowed at at a symbol of a cross many times in your life. But if every time you've done that action, you've done so thinking that that action gets you some sort of merit to God, you've never really bowed at the cross. Because we have to come with empty hands saying, I am unworthy of God's grace and mercy, recognizing that we stand under His judgment. And if you do that and you repent and you believe on Christ, the Scriptures say you can be saved. You can have your sins washed away completely. Completely. And you can be rescued from sin's power today and you can look forward to an inheritance with Christ for all of eternity. And all of it is available simply through faith. So if you've never believed on Christ, I hope, I pray that you will do so today. Let's have everyone bow your head and close your eyes. And so since we've walked through the gospel so clearly, I just want to give an opportunity if there's anyone here that has not trusted in Christ as your Savior, but you have questions about the gospel, questions about how you can be saved, and you'd like me to pray for you or potentially seek you out, would you just slip up your hand so that I could know to to look for you and seek you out? Is there anyone like that today? You need to be saved. You don't know that you are in Christ. Anyone like that at all? All right. Lord, we thank you so much for your mercy and for the cross. And thank you for the new life that is available in Jesus. And so, Lord, I thank you I praise you. Lord, I pray that all of us would leave today knowing the assurance of the gospel. And Father, I pray that we would live every day of our lives in humility before Christ. Not despising sinners, but amazed that you would love us. And Lord, may it lead to a life of obedience and righteousness and grace before the world. A life that reflects the nature of our Savior. In Christ's name, amen.